Move here. Good morning, everyone. Such a joy to be with you. Um, as we start today, I'm going to start a little bit differently. I wanted to share with you a story. Um, and this is a story about my life 20 years ago um, and about a little boy that I knew. So we were loosely friends in primary school. And I remember one Saturday being invited round his family house for a birthday party. I don't know if any of you have been to a kid's birthday party, but they're about 10,000 times more exciting than an adult one. Um, I was so excited because I love birthday parties, but also because I've been told that he had a really amazing house and that there might be a bouncy castle, which there was, so very, very exciting. And so I remember arriving seven years old at this birthday party, party outfit on, ready for pass the parcel, a musical statues or whatever other game we might play. But as I was sitting in the living room, probably eating jelly and ice cream, I remember looking into the next room and it had these big doors that were glass paneled so you could see everything that was going on inside. And there was a table that was laid out, even though no one was having dinner, with beautiful china plates. The carpet was pristine. The curtains hung just so. It was an immaculate room. It looked nothing like any room that I'd seen in my house. Um, no offense to my parents. Um, and it didn't really look like any room that I'd ever seen before. And so I asked the birthday boy about the room, why it was already laid out like that, why no one was sitting in it, why he wouldn't go in there. And he told me, oh, that's our special room. We only go in there at Christmas, but sometimes we don't even go in then. Mum just says that it's the room that we've got set up in case the Queen unexpectedly dropped by for dinner. That's what mums always say, isn't it? But when's the Queen going to drop by? And then he said to me, we're not really allowed in. It's just a room for show, really, and we don't really go in there. And I remember seven-year-old me was pretty confused and surprised I thought to myself, why on earth would you have a room in your house that no one went in, and that someone cleaned and laid out the table for, but that no one would ever go in? It seemed pretty silly to me, and it still does now, 20 years later. And for you, I imagine it seems a bit silly and weird that I'm sharing that story with you before I start sharing from the Bible. But today, I get the joy of continuing the series that you've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. Um, Phil chatted about how God was unchanging last week. And this week, we're going to look at how God is holy. And so the story might seem a little bit strange, but I don't know if you have images that come into your mind when you hear the word holy. Maybe you think, I know exactly what that means. But for me, I find the definition really hard to pin down. What does it mean that God is holy? Maybe it means that he doesn't like when we do stuff wrong. Or maybe it means that he's really distant and far away. Or maybe we think of the word holier than thou and think that God's just some kind of judgmental person in the sky pointing down at us. But what does holiness actually mean? And as I was preparing this story of the little boy and the special room in his house is what came to my mind. Because fundamentally, I think that's what saying God is holy means. It means that he is set apart, just like that room was different to every other room, just like it was so immaculately made and very unlike any room I'd ever been in. 
God is set apart. He is different. He is other. And that's what we mean when we say that God is holy. I imagine if we read through the Bible and the people uh, in the Bible saw this special room in the boy's house, they might call it the holy room, the room that's set apart. And so that's the framework that I want us to use today as we think about what it means that God is holy. We mean that God is set apart. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a look at the Bible. So Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you that you reveal who you are through it. And so, Lord, I pray that as I share this morning, that you would increase and that I would decrease, and that as we read your word, that your spirit would just illuminate what it is that you want to show us of who you are. Amen. So we're going to be spending most of our time this morning in a book called Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is a prophet to the people of God, and if you read through the book, there's loads of really grand visions that he has. And we're going to be looking specifically at chapter 6 starting at verse 1. The vision that he has is a bit weird, so I'm going to try and unpack it, but don't worry if you don't really get what's going on. Um, I definitely didn't for a while. So it starts in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we we start the passage by hearing the context. Where does Isaiah have this vision? And we read, first of all, that it's in the year that King Isaiah died. Now, you might have heard of King Isaiah. You might not have done. If you read through scripture, he's actually mentioned quite a few times. He's also known as King Azariah. Um, and he is one in a very long line of kings of Israel's, kings of Israel, sorry, and is actually described as being a pretty good and godly king, which, if you read about the kings, is quite a rare thing. He became king at the age of 16, which, imagine being king when you're 16, that's crazy. Um, and he reigned for 52 years and was described as having done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, Isaiah was a military leader. He was known across the land for his kind of battle prowess and being particularly strong um, in his army. And so when we read in this passage, in the year King Isaiah died, there's actually quite a lot that's being said, especially when we look at what comes directly afterwards. Isaiah tells us, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Uzziah, this great king, this great military leader, this great strong man of God, dies. But God is seated on a throne. This is the contrast that Isaiah gives us. Immediately, he shows us something about the character of God and why God is so different from men. Why God is so other, so set apart from mankind. Kings, rulers, authorities, powers, famous or otherwise, they will all pass away and die. But where is the Lord? 
He's seated on the throne. He always has been and he always will be. Isaiah reminds us that kings and rulers, good or bad, come and go. They are finite and their lives will end, but the Lord endures forever. He reminds us that there is a throne and there is a king and sometimes we decide who's going to live on that throne, but we don't really have a choice. God is king. He is king above all kings and he will rule and reign forever. And we read on that not only is he sitting upon a throne, but he is high and lifted up. The language that Isaiah uses just reminds us again and again that God is so set apart. He is so unlike anybody else. And then we go on to see that God is so glorious that the train of his robe fills the temple. When my husband John and I were chatting about this verse, he told me that when he hears the train of his robe, he thinks of an actual choo-choo train. Um, So just to kind of explain what that means, it's not a choo-choo train. Um, But what he actually means here is more like an item of clothing, like the train on the back of a wedding dress. So when we hear the words, the train of his robe filled the temple, I find it easier to picture the royal wedding and Princess Diana and her robe and the train of her robe going down the aisle. It shows the importance and significance of the bride at a wedding, and it's kind of the same thing here. God's train is so big that it fills the temple. It's not even his whole robe, it's just the back bit of the robe fills the temple. That's how big and glorious and splendid God is. His majesty is unrivaled. He isn't like anyone else, he's not like any other king. And then above this God, sitting high and lifted up on a throne, are seraphim, which is another word for angels. And they're not really like any angels that we might be familiar with in a nativity story. They're described as having six wings, with two to cover their face, and two to cover their feet, and two to fly. They're so unlike any creature that we can imagine. They're so different to us as humans, but yet we hear that they're crying out a song about the king sitting on the throne. They're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I just mentioned that holy means set apart and different and other. And these creatures that to us are really strange, really other, really different, are the ones that are saying about God that he is holy. This means that God is so different to anything else The Bible tells us that he made the angels, and so we can know that he is unlike anything else in all creation. He is above and beyond anything that is created. And as we hear the angels sing this song, it's important to note that they say, holy, holy, holy. Three times they say the word holy. If we read through Hebrew scripture, which is most of the first half of the Bible, If you hear a word repeated, it's like it's being underlined. And if you hear it three times, it's like someone's pointing arrows at it and highlighting it and underlining it and saying, this word is really, really important. The seraphim are declaring, this God is so different. He is so set apart. He is so other. He is so holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this song beautifully echoes throughout history and into eternity. In Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, we read another vision from a man called John. 
And he says that the Lord is still seated on the throne. And we read that there are angels and living creatures around that throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. From this vision in Isaiah to this vision of the glorious picture we have of heaven, that is the song that's being sung about God, that he is holy. That is what the angels are singing about who God is. The same God, high and lifted up, is the same God that lives into eternity, that always has been, always will be. That is the God that we worship. And as we read on, how does Isaiah respond? How would you respond in this situation? You've seen this king, this majestic and splendid figure sitting on a throne with angels surrounding him, singing towards him. How would you react? Would you walk boldly towards the throne? Would you imagine that you were in the right place and think that you deserve to be there? Because Isaiah certainly doesn't. His first response is to say, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah tells us that the natural response to seeing the holiness, the set-apartness of God, to seeing his glory and splendor, is to be aware of how not like him we are as humans. I wonder if you think this is true. Perhaps when you think about God, this set-apartness makes sense to you. It's completely understandable. Maybe you think of God as someone who is distant and far off and not very close, so it makes sense that he's not like us. Or maybe you don't know what holiness really means, or you've forgotten, and you think of God kind of like a little teddy bear that's close and cuddly and friendly. But Isaiah's response, I think, is the only real way that we can react when we encounter the holiness of God, when we see the complete measure of who he is. We read in Genesis and then throughout Scripture that time and time again, we as humans, humanity, choose to turn away from God. Even though God is king, as Isaiah clearly sees in this vision, we think that we should be king. We choose to take the crown from God's head and place it on our own. And the Bible calls this sin. And all we can do when we behold the holiness of God, as Isaiah did in this vision, is to see the stark reality of how sinful we are in contrast, of how different we are to this holy and beautiful God. Isaiah recognizes that it isn't just him either, but it's mankind as a whole. He declares that he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Our world is broken. We can see that. I feel like that's not going to be news to all of us. Just this week in the news, we might have heard about the murder of Sarah Everard or Sabina Nessa or various different people across the UK and around the world. We might hear of the atrocities happening in Afghanistan. We might hear of natural disasters. We might have personal experiences of horrendous things happening. We know that the world isn't how it should be. We know that we as humanity are broken and that there are evil people that live in the world. And we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips right now, just as Isaiah said he did in that vision. Humanity is sinful and so unlike the holy God that Isaiah sees. And like Isaiah, when we have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, we see that he is spotless, without sin. He is holy and he is so unlike humanity. 
Scripture tells us that sin is abhorrent to God. Sin and God cannot coexist because he is entirely holy. He is entirely righteous. He is entirely set apart. Just like that special room at that boy's birthday party, perfectly laid out and cleaned, untouched by human hands. God is so holy. But we're a sinful people And so how can we ever reach him? How can we ever touch him? How can we ever come close to him? Surely every time we see him, our response is just, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And the answer is that by ourselves, we cannot draw near to this holy God. We would just be consumed. We cannot reach toward a holy God in our human frailty and brokenness But though it seems hopeless and we might cry, woe is me, and leave it there, fortunately, the story doesn't end there. We're only about halfway through the Bible and there's some good stuff to get to. God remains holy. He doesn't change. That's who he is. He is holy, but he doesn't leave us to wallow in our wretchedness. Instead, he intervenes. And he doesn't just send someone else to deal with it. He doesn't just zap and say they can be holy too. Because we know that God is completely holy, but that isn't the only thing about him. In a few weeks' time, you're going to be looking at how God is also judge and how God is also love. There are so many facets to who God is. And one of the things I love about God's holiness is that it isn't just like a slice of the God pie, so to speak. It's that his holiness permeates every other part of who God is. So when we say that God is holy, we mean that his justice is holy. We mean that his love is holy. We mean his creation is holy. His peace is holy. Everything about who God is, is holy. Just as God is just, and his love is just, and his holiness is just, and his peace is just. And so it's out of this entirely holy nature, an entirely just nature, an entirely loving nature, all of who God is, that he knows he simply cannot excuse sin and say, it's fine, we'll just sweep it under the rug, because he is so holy and sin is so horrible to him. He knows that something has to be done, a punishment has to be served, and it can only be done by one who is already holy totally perfect, righteous, and without sin. But as Isaiah highlighted, we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He is around people who are sinful. Humanity is sinful. So who among us is without sin? We're not like God. We cannot be holy on our own. And he cannot, be, he cannot stop being holy. So who can intervene? And it's in this beautiful moment that we see the holiness, the justice, the mercy, and the love of God meet together as that same king that Isaiah saw seated on the throne in glory and majesty steps off his throne and says, here I am, I will go. The only one that can intervene to reconcile a sinful people to a relationship with a holy God is God himself. And so Jesus, God incarnate, God made flesh, God made man, comes to earth. The king of all kings, who deserves to be seated on a throne, high and lifted up, praised forever and ever and ever, leaves the comfort and the glory of heaven. 
He's born of a woman and becomes a human baby, a crying, pooing, utterly dependent baby. He himself dwells in the midst of these people of unclean lips, but remains completely without sin. He identifies with our human brokenness, but remains righteous and without blemish. Though tempted as we are, he lives a perfect and sinless life. But then, knowing the complete holy justice of the Father, Jesus knows that he must pay the price for sin if he's going to reconcile us sinful people to this set-apart God. The price was death, and Jesus knew that he was going to pay it. Can you imagine how he would have felt? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he knew through most of his life that this is what was before him. The same God who in Isaiah's vision was clothed in majesty and splendor would have experienced the agony of seeing his friends betray him. He would have known the pain and fear of despair as he asked God to take the cup from him in the garden of Gethsemane. He would have endured the hurt of humiliation as people took lots for his clothing and mocked him and humiliated him. And as his hands were nailed to a cross, he would have felt the agony of suffocation, the pain of having a crown of thorns shoved onto his head and vinegar dripped onto his tongue. Jesus' pain would have been unbearable. The word excruciating comes from the process of crucifixion because there wasn't a word to sum up the agony that would have been felt. So why did Jesus endure the cross? A book later in the Bible called Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It was for us. Jesus went through the agony of crucifixion for the joy of seeing us reconciled to that holy God for whom we were created. God could not stop being holy. It's who he is. But because of the blood of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done, we too are now invited to be holy just like God. Isn't that amazing? That that God that is seated on the throne, high and lifted up, that because of the blood of Jesus, we are holy like him. We are set apart. We are different. If we imagine the special room at that little boy's birthday party, set apart and holy, it's not that the room now becomes any less beautiful or any less resplendent or any less perfect, but because of Jesus, somehow us with our mucky hands about to mess everything up are allowed to enter into that room. We're allowed to sit at that table. We're allowed to be in the place that is set apart and holy because of the blood of Jesus. We no longer need to look from a distance and say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. But instead, we can enter into the presence of that holy God. Unlike Isaiah, who could only say, woe is me, we can confidently and boldly walk towards the throne and say, because of Jesus, I am welcome here. I am welcome in the presence of a holy God because I have been made holy too. Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What an amazing reality that because of what Jesus has done, we can approach the God of holiness and splendor that we saw in this vision. And not only that, we are made holy we too become set apart. 
unlike the world around us. We are able to flee from sin and pursue righteousness because of what Jesus has done. We too can truly join in the chorus of angels that echoes into eternity where we will one day be with Jesus forever and declare that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Hallelujah. And the way to do this is simple. We need only accept the sacrifice that this perfect, holy God made in Jesus. If that's something you've never done before, if you've never accepted Jesus into your life, if you've never looked at what Jesus has done and said, I want to be like you, I want to follow you, today is a great day to make that decision. And I tell you now that it's the best decision you'll ever make. You won't regret it because it's what you were made for. You were made for a relationship with that holy God. And if that's a decision you've already made and you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I urge you to behold Jesus again. Behold the majestic and holy God that Isaiah saw seated on the throne of I- and know that he is holy and set apart and he is wonderful and beautiful. But also behold the meek and tender Jesus upon the cross who gave his life to make a way for you. And as we behold him more and more, we believe that we will become more like him. As the Bible tells us, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image. As we behold the holy God, we too become holy because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can look in wonder at who you are, that you are holy, that you are mighty, that you are beautiful and magnificent. But God, we thank you as well for what Jesus has done and that because of him, we can also become holy. We can be set apart. We can be different and unlike the world around us. We can look like Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enable us to behold you every day, to behold Jesus and to stare and wonder at who he is, but that you would also make us to look more like him until that day in eternity when we can join the song of heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen.